0: No, we've not started buying, uh, selling commercial time for our sermons. So this sermon is not brought to you by Toyota Motor Corporation. But uh, being a real softy, uh, commercials like this touch my heart deeply. Uh, a year or so ago, this was seen regularly, reflecting powerfully the emotions of what it is for families of and those in our. Uh, military men and women, coming home for Christmas, especially when it's an overseas deployment. Or if you have a family member who is deployed overseas who is not coming home for Christmas, the holiday heightens the emotions even more, doesn't it? During the heart of World War II, when, of course, Hundreds of thousands of America's young men and many women as well were far from home, my father among them, Uh, serving in the European theater in North Africa, in Asia, in the Pacific. Uh, Dad spent the war in Hawaii. Uh, All of them, all of them, that might have been a nice place for him, but oh, he, he agonized how he longed to be home to be joined with his fiance and to be married. They put it off for about four years because of the war. All of them longing for home. And, and during that time, the most popular single recording, 78 RPM, and uh, all recordings, not just 78s, um, the most popular recording in history was put out Irving Berlin's I'm Dreaming of a White Christmas, sung by Bing Crosby, 100 million copies, and 50 million more by other artists in future years. But one year later, in 1943, Crosby released the very popular single I'll Be Home for Christmas. I'll Be Home for Christmas, you can plan on me. Please have snow and mistletoe and presents on the tree. Christmas Eve will find me where the love light gleams. I'll be home for Christmas, if only in my dreams. Never really thought about that strange ending to that song until I put it in the context that this longing for home for our soldiers and sailors and their families longing for them to be home, for many that was A hope that was unfulfilled as they died in that great war. In this, the third of our four Sundays of Advent, our continuing theme is Home for Christmas. Pastor Jeff kicked it off two weeks ago with a description of our home that God made for us called Eden. Our original home, a place of shalom, a place of perfect peace and well-being, a a home, a a place of peace with God, good relationship with God, good relationship uh, with each other, the image bearers of God, made to love and be loved, all was good, all was, the Bible says, very good. But then last week, the sermon title was Lost. And we face the awful reality of being driven from that beautiful place of perfection into a lost world of alienation from God and from each other, a place of broken relationships, pain, and death. However, in the midst of the bad news, we found interwoven into the text the roots of the good news, not all the details. I'm sure glad we have more than just Genesis 3 to give us the gospel, but The roots are there. The promise that life goes on, that that grace covers shame, that there is hope for eternal life after death, that our enemy will someday be defeated, and even some powerful hints of the cross of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice necessary to redeem us from our sin, from being lost. But it was a long wait. A long wait. 1,400 years passed after Moses recorded the events of Genesis 3, and I don't know how long it was from Eden to Genesis, uh, from Eden to Moses, Uh, and you don't either, uh, by the way. But during that long wait, when God's people cried out, how long, O Lord, the promises That are rooted in Genesis 3 were reinforced and illustrated by numerous examples in Israel's experience, particularly the sacrifices that were offered. And then God gave the prophets, who who passed on to Israel more and more information about the details of this coming Savior, this rescuer, a baby conceived by a virgin whose names only are appropriate for God. The location of his birth, the purpose of his birth, that he would be a suffering servant, dying a horrific death as the ultimate and only sacrifice for sinners. So the promises were given, they were expanded, they were made clear, and yet it didn't come to pass. And they waited, and they waited some more. And then it seems the prophecies themselves dried up. No more prophets. 400 years of silence and they waited and they went through such difficult times and then the Roman era came along occupation and oppression and Israel still waited and hoped the old man Simeon waiting for the consolation of Israel The old widow, Anna, 84 years of age, waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. They believed God's promise. And they cried out, how long, O Lord? And then finally the time came. Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5 describes it this way. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a virgin, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Please stand for the reading of God's word from Philippians chapter 2 for today's message, Lost and Found.
1: Thank you. Have this in mind among yourselves,
0: You may be seated. This is an astounding passage. If you've known it for a long time, perhaps it's gotten too common. I hope to stir it up in your heart today. I I, I can't do it. I hope God will stir it up in your heart today and mine as well. This takes us to the very heart of the gospel, God's rescue of those who were lost and alienated, who lost our home with God because of sin, but now are brought back to God, brought home again through the incarnation, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the heart of this passage is this. Jesus left his home to bring us home. Jesus left his home to bring us home. How did he do it? Well, it's not the sentimentality of going back home again to our earthly roots. I showed you last week what Linda and I find when we try to go back home again. Not a place we really want to live today. Figurative, though, of that which is far worse, far, far worse. The decay that is all around us in this world described so tragically in Genesis 3 of alienation, suffering, and death, and the main thing, separation from God. That's not what Jesus left to bring us home again to. Jesus left his home to bring us home, to a much better home, to a renewed Eden, a garden. Jesus referred to it as he was on the cross as paradise, a, a garden in the presence of God's Manifest glory ultimately, and this is still yet future, but a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells, where there is no sin. How did he do it? Well, the answer is in the text. We're going to consider it in three sections. I'm really only covering verses five through eight today, but you can't read that text without reading nine through 11. Because that's what comes after it and is so much part of it. But we're going to limit ourselves to the three sections. Verse 6, his identity. Verse 7, his new identity and humility. And verse 8, his suffering and sacrifice. So first, his identity. He is God. Understand who we're talking about here. Verse 6 states it this way. Who though he was in the form of God, ESV, or who being in very nature God, NIV. And this is exactly what the ancient prophets said would be true about the future Messiah, King, Rescuer, Isaiah 9-6, calls him, among other names, Mighty God. He is God. That's how Jesus is presented in the New Testament. His miracles testify to his deity. Who is this? that the wind and the waves obey him. Who is this who claims to forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. Who is this who heals the sick and even raises the dead? Who is this who says, I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the door, I am the bread of life, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth and the life, I am the vine. Who would say those kinds of things? Who is this who says, before Abraham was born, I am, claiming to exist prior to Abraham who lived 2,000 years before this and used the language of God's self-revelation To Moses, I am who I am. There was no doubt in his listeners' minds that day that he was claiming to be God. He was claiming to be Yahweh. In the Old Testament, in our translations, Lord, all caps, the name for God. the personal name for God. And so he claims the name that only belongs to God. The prophecy that identifies Bethlehem as the place where Messiah would be born is Micah 5 and verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come uh, for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Now this is strange. Micah, about 700 B.C., roughly prophesied that one who has not yet come, he didn't know how soon it would be, but it would be 700 years down the road. Nevertheless, this one who comes 700 years later is from the past. In other words, this one who comes existed before he was born, before he was conceived, he precedes history. That's exactly what John claimed when he introduces Jesus in the Gospels, in the beginning, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. It's no accident that John borrows the first words of Genesis, in the beginning, to introduce Jesus, and that that is before God created the heavens and the earth, before there was any matter, before there was time, there was God, and the claim is that Jesus was there. He was with God in the beginning. John goes on to say, Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. We sang that a moment ago, that Jesus is the Creator. Colossians 1.16, For by Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, all things were created by Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He's the creator and sustainer of all things. Colossians 1, 15 and 19, He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him. Colossians 2, 9, For in Christ All the fullness of deity dwells. this gets to our next point, in bodily form. And the concept of the Trinity, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, while not fully developed in Genesis, is assumed and logically required by what we find there and what continues to be unveiled. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and a perfect love and fellowship from eternity past. Jesus is introduced as God the Son, who Paul says in this text is in very nature God. Number two, we move from his identity as God to his new identity and humility. He became man. Verses 6 to 8, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. So he's found as God, and then he is found as human. This is called the incarnation. The incarnation. Now, uh, in recent years, as the East and the West have come together, uh, reincarnation has been become very popular in our culture, and a lot of people have come to buy into this. Uh, people tend to just think, well, I like the idea, sounds kind of fun, I wonder what I'll come back next time, I wonder what I was before, and so this idea that souls cycle through many lives may be coming back in different life forms. Uh, different animals, whatever. My friends, the Bible teaches not this circular nonsense, but a linear understanding. We are not preexistent. Jesus was, but we are not. We came into existence at conception. And there's some that have this idea that, well, God has a bag of souls over here, and He He, he then puts a soul into the, the body as it is conceived, and, and so that's that's what, what you have. And so you better have enough, enough bodies made for all the souls that God has in this bag over here. No, 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 no. There's no souls over here. We do not exist at all until that moment of conception when a due being, both spiritual and physical, Comes into, into into existence, but it's linear; it's not circular. We are conceived, we are born, we live, we die, we face judgment, and eternity. And so, it's not reincarnation. Don't let that word confuse you. We're talking about incarnation. To incarnate is to take on carnus or flesh, to take on a body. We, we don't do that. We didn't take on our body. We just That's how we started with a body, body and spirit. We never had an existence apart from our bodies. But Jesus had an eternal existence before he had a body, and the essence of what Christmas is about. Did you hear that? The essence of what Christmas is about is that Jesus became flesh. He took on humanity. He took on a body. Philippians 2.6, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus was and is God from eternity But he didn't hang on to all the divine privileges and prerogatives with a clenched, grasping fist. And this text, while on one level it is just, and I'm staying on that level this morning, it's simple, it's beautiful, it's astounding, it's beyond comprehension, but to go into all the nuances of exactly to what extent Jesus emptied himself and to how he's limited we just need to be careful that we, we understand he is still fully God he did not give up any, any his, he did not give up his godness but by entering into humanity what does that say about omnipresence what does that say even about his learning growing experience what does that say about omniscience, those are, those are challenging things that, that, that theologians grasp with. I'm not going to go there today. Just make sure we don't go to one extreme or the other. But he became a man. He became a man starting the same way you did, microscopically, as an embryo, then a zygote, then a fetus, then he was born and he nursed at his mother's breast. I choked as we sang that a moment ago. I I had to stop singing for a moment because here's the creator, the same line that says, here's the creator of the universe who is now nursing as an infant, fully dependent on his mother's milk. Whew! That's amazing. It's phenomenal. Eternal God the Son second person of the Trinity, voluntarily entered into humanity, not taking any shortcuts, but as eternal God, placed into a woman's body, conceived as a human baby, experiencing the same process of fetal development. Think about that when you're studying uh, human physiology and reproduction. Think about that, how Jesus fits into that. In that sense... Jesus' humanity is no different than ours, with one huge exception. Jesus was conceived in the womb of a virgin. No human seed, no male seed involved. The Bible clearly teaches this from the prophecy of Isaiah 7.14 and the way it's expressed in the New Testament. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and he will be called. So this son, this baby, this human is given the name Emmanuel. Okay, that's weird. You've got a a human being, a baby, and his name is God with us. So the incarnation by virgin conception is taught in the Old Testament, and two very shocked and troubled individuals had their lives turned upside down by its fulfillment. You can read Luke 1, 30 to 38, where the angel appeared to Mary to explain to her what was, what was going to happen to her, and she was still a virgin and, and, and would conceive a child as a virgin, and, and how would the community of Nazareth accept her explanation? Yeah, how would that go? And, and she was betrothed to, to joseph which is similar to engagement but more binding yet they had not consummated their marriage she knew that he knew that how would he explain it to her you can read matthew 1 18 to 25 where joseph heard about mary's pregnancy was planning to sever the relationship to divorce her betrothal meant to get out of it you had to divorce uh, she, He of course assumed she'd been with another man what else could he think but the angel came to Jesus to, to, to Joseph too, and explained the unusual circumstances that Mary was not unfaithful as it appeared. She was still a virgin yet pregnant. Oh, what a man of faith Joseph was. He took Mary as his wife, but there was no honeymoon to consummate their marriage sexually. She remained a virgin. Underline the next two words in your hearing, until after Jesus was born. They then had a normal marriage. They at least had six children. Jesus had at least four brothers and two sisters, perhaps more. But that was after Jesus was born. So Jesus was born of a virgin, and yes, that's a stumbling block for many, and it would say, you know, it's impossible. Are you so stupid to believe that virgins have babies? No, I'm not so stupid to believe virgins have babies. I know that's naturally impossible. We're not suggesting this is common or possible by natural means, not even by some strange aberration. No, this was a supernatural reality. If you have a closed system in which God is not allowed to do anything different than what we normally see, then you get a problem with this. But you've got a very short-sighted understanding of who God is. This is a supernatural reality. This is the work of God so that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, would become one of us, a human being with a body born to a virgin mother. And by the way, the Bible teaches that Jesus became fully man and some some uh, fall, st- uh, stumble on this one. He became permanently man. No, oh, it's all over the New Testament. He became permanently man. This wasn't just temporary. Um, our statement of faith. Oh, I lost my place here. Sorry. The Bible teaches that that Jesus became. Fully man and permanently man, not temporarily a man. 1 Timothy 2.5, there's one God and there's one mediator between God and men. The Spirit, Christ Jesus? No, the man, Christ Jesus, who's in heaven as our mediator. He's still a man. Still has a body, a resurrected body now, the prototype of what awaits us. He was resurrected in that body. He ascended into heaven in that body. He intercedes for us before the Father in that body. And so we believe that Jesus is, not was, but is fully God and fully man, permanently the God-man, our god and our brother, our statement of faith, says it this way. We believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, fully God and fully man, one person in two natures. So look at verse 6, in the form of God, who being in very nature God. Verse 7, born in the likeness of man, being found in human likeness. And I again refer to John's introduction to the gospel. The word became flesh. He's previously been identified as God became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And so think about it. God becoming man, limited in time and space, to an embryo, taking on the limitations and suffering of humanity, growing into adulthood like any baby that's healthy will do. But now comes this huge and important question, why? Why? Back to our opening statement at the top here. Jesus left his home to bring us home, but, my friends, he wasn't the bus driver who came to load us up and take us from point A to point B or the airplane pilot to take us from this place to that place. Much more was needed, and let's allow Hebrews 2.14 to help us here to provide a transition for us now to our third point. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. So there's another statement of the humanity of Jesus. So that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery in the fear of death. Why did Jesus become man, why did Jesus clothe himself with humanity, enter into humanity with the limitations of a body? The answer is our third third point, his suffering and sacrifice. His suffering and sacrifice. He came to be tortured and die for us. Verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He became a man with a body so that he would suffer. Physical suffering is very much a part of it and die for us. That's why Jesus came. That's what Jesus did. I hope you see Christmas Without the cross is meaningless. It's just sentimentality. It's all it is. It has no real value if the cross is not included in our understanding. Jesus was born into this world not just to be our teacher or show us a good example, and that's what you read. Oh, we just need to follow the teaching of Jesus. Yes, we need to follow the teaching of Jesus. Jesus is our example. Yes, Jesus is our example. But I tell you, that is, while it's very important, and and believers certainly need to to, to pay attention to that, but there is, in a sense, in which, do I dare say, it is secondary to his main purpose for coming to die, to die for you, to be your savior. The angel explained this to Joseph. She, Mary, will give birth to a son. And you, Joseph, will give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus, Jesus, means to save one who saves. And during his ministry with his disciples, he began to prepare them for this purpose. Matthew 16, 21 explains from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things, and that he must be killed. He must be killed. And on the third day, raised to life. As the time of his arrest drew closer, Jesus said, now my heart is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. So please understand, the crucifixion of Jesus was not a tragic interruption to the plan of God. It was the plan of God. And now looking back on the history of Jesus' death and resurrection, we can say Of Jesus' role as the Savior, he fulfilled that role to perfection. He did what he came to do. God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still or yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's why he came. Or Robert Robinson in the great hymn, Come Thou Fount, Jesus Sought Me When a Stranger Wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. Paul describes that as the heart of the news, the good news in 1 Corinthians 15, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Okay, it's all right for me to say this is above everything else, everything else in some sense is secondary because this is first importance, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. In 2 Corinthians 8 9, he says it this way For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And don't distort that one and say, Oh, Jesus wants us to be rich. Not that way. Not that riches that rot. Far better. In the years uh, prior to World War II, missionaries in China were facing great difficulty. Um, A lot was going on in China in the 1930s, um, 20s to 40s, actually. And these difficulties came to a climax when young missionaries John and Betty Stamm were captured and beheaded in 1934. This is the exact same era when Eric Little of Chariots of Fire fame, the Scottish runner, who says, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. He went to China. He was born in China. He went back to China and served as a missionary there for about 20 years. And and he suffered under that very difficult time going on into the World War II period as well. And he died in an internment camp there in 1945, just five months before the war ended. Well, back to the death of John and Betty Stamm in 1934, the tragic news reached the China Inland Mission Headquarters in Shanghai, and Frank Houghton, who was a, a mission leader called the Editorial Secretary, I don't know what that is, he, he decided against the advice of those who were more cautious to take a dangerous tour through the country of China to visit various mission outposts. While traveling through the mountains of Shejuan, the powerful and comforting words of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 came to him. Let me read it again. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And Frank Houghton wrote this Christmas hymn, Thou who wast rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake became poor. See the contrast. Thrones for a manger did surrender. Sapphire paved courts for stable floor. Thou who wast rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake became poor. Second verse, Thou who art God beyond all praising, All for love's sake became as man, stooping so low, but sinners raising heavenwards by thine eternal plan. Thou who art God, beyond all praising, all for love's sake became as poor. I was going over this in my office uh, earlier this morning, and and the words of another old hymn that I haven't heard in a long time came to mind. actually... uh, Looked it up on the internet and listened to a YouTube of George Beverly Shea singing, Out of the Ivory Palaces, into a world of woe, only his great eternal love made my Savior go. Jesus left his home to bring us home. Would you pray with me? Oh God, open our minds and hearts to be astounded at what you did and how it's described in your word the incarnation, eternal God entering into humanity to die. And As we come to the table this morning, I pray that um, the significance of Christmas will be driven deep in our souls with a, a soberness in one sense and yet overflowing joy to realize what this means for us, rescue salvation a chance to truly go home again to a new and better home because of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.